We are glad that you are here. I have tried to lean into the rhythm of, uh, I think every homily I've given so far, I've given you a question and then given you some time to reflect with yourselves and then with one another. Uh, the answer to that question, going to change it up just slightly. I'm going to still throw out a question, but I just want you to think on it, and I'll even give just a few moments for you to internally think through it. But I'm more just wanting you to have the sense of trying to imagine yourself in the space. So the question is going to be, when is a memorable time you looked up into the night sky? And all I'm really trying to get you to do, and you don't have to share this or anything, it's just to have the internal experience, is to try to imagine, put yourself back in that space. What was it like? What, what was it that was making it memorable? What were you experiencing about that? Uh, what was it like to be there uh, and to take that in in whatever sensory ways that you took that in? So take just a few moments to try to think of one of those times and to allow whatever it was that you were experiencing. It may not even be about what you were seeing. It may have been about the temperature or who you were with or et cetera, but, but what was it like uh, to be there under the evening sky? So just take a few moments and get in that head and heart space. For me, when I looked up at the night sky in the savanna of Kenya's Maasai Mara, I just almost felt like there was something that was caught in my throat. And uh, part of that is obviously if you're someplace where there's not a lot of light pollution, you're able to see the cosmos in ways that even if you try to get miles outside of our cities, often in many places in America, there's still so much light pollution. So some of it was just that experience that we always have of the dazzling beauty of whenever you're just out in the middle of nowhere and you're able to look up and see uh, that. But some of it was, and a little embarrassed that it even, because I'd already taken, I think, college astronomy level classes as well as a high school astronomy level class. Uh, somehow it had been lost upon me that when you're south of the equator, you get to see other things that you don't get to see when you're north of the equator, when you look up into the skies. And so not only was I seeing things that I had never seen before, I was like, that's never been in the sky before. You know, like, how is that's not supposed to be there? Where has this been my whole life? Uh, and then start remembering like, oh, yeah, if I can try to draw back to some of those courses. Yeah, I took two courses at UT Astronomy because I love real hard science that much. Uh, so I was like, does that count for my science? Can astronomy, no shade to astronomers. Uh, I'm sure it's a very real science, but for me it felt like a very least real science that I could uh, participate in. And so there was something about that and particularly seeing the crux or the Southern Cross that was just there and just like overwhelmingly uh, there and it never dawned on me that like, yeah, where we are positioned uh, in the world matters, how we experience the world and even something like looking up into the cosmos can be vastly different uh, depending on where we are. In our text today, uh, Abram is in a place in his life where he's just sort of done this kind of SWAT team commando thing. His nephew, Lot, had been kidnapped by sort of some, I kind of like to think of it as sort of this like mafia thug sort of cohort uh, people. And so they've gone in and they've extracted him out. Uh, and it looked very unlikely. It's like odds are against us, but somehow Abram, they've gone in, 
very tactical, been able to get him out. People are excited. Everything has gone well. This is sort of in just uh, right before the story that we have. And so our, our passage then begins after these things, and those things were all of that SWAT team tactical stuff that happened uh, in Genesis 14. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid. Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God's speech disrupts Abram's life in the aftermath of this armed conflict with rival kings. Uh, Yet this admonition might be loaded with a little bit of confrontation too. You see, in our story of Abram, we don't ever get any indication that he was anxious, even though he is doing overseeing this tactical extraction of his nephew and other people in the previous chapter. There, there's no sense in the text or in the story that in any part of that, Abram was anxious. But before that story, a famine hits the land and they, Abram and Abram's wife Sarai go to Egypt. And there we learn that Abram says, hey, honey, you're an incredibly remarkable person and everybody knows it. And that's the problem is that everybody knows it. And I'm really worried that because we are outsiders here in Egypt, that everyone's going to see how remarkable you are and they're going to want you for themselves. So could we just maybe say, because I mean, technically you are my half sister, because yeah, that's also the interesting world that we find in our ancient Near Eastern text called the Bible. Technically, you are my half-sister, so what if instead of saying to everyone, you're my wife, we say you're my sister, and that way I get to live? Doesn't that sound good? That seems to me to be really optimal. And so Abram has been anxious, and this is where we have seen him anxious, and so that is the story that they tell uh, earlier in Genesis, and because of this, word does start spreading through Egypt, that Sarai is this remarkable human being, and Pharaoh says, well, I want to have a remarkable human being in my life. She should join my household, and so she does, and likely all that that implies. Wilda Gaffney, a womanist Old Testament professor, says, in modern parlance, we might call Abram a pimp in this moment. And she doesn't say that, uh, she does probably say that with a little bit of tongue in cheek, but she also says that truly implicating the horrors that Abram has asked Sarai to subject herself to in order to cater to his own anxieties and to cater to his own sense of safety. And so I do really wonder at the beginning of our story, when God breaks into Abram's world and says, do not be afraid, if part of what God is trying to remind Abram and perhaps to remind us, don't lose awareness of what happens when you aren't aware of the anxiety and the fear that is within you, when you allow it to drive you to places that are not good for you, for your family, for the world. Can you be aware of the presence of anxiety in our lives? And I don't think any of us would probably say that we need any help in these days, uh, being aware that there is anxiety, but are we aware to what we do with anxiety and what anxiety does with us and how it impacts our relationships, our decisions, 
our sense of well-being, perhaps even our collective imagination and what it would mean for us to show solidarity with one another? How does fear break us down and slow us down and keep us stuck and isolated from one another, from our collective good, from God? Do not be afraid, Abram. And so we're invited as we enter into the story to begin when the way is uncertain to take that inventory in our own life, to be open to seeing, to observing, to welcoming the anxiety that's there, which could just be a tip of the hat. You know, it's like I have literally on the coffee uh, scale that I have at home to measure all of the stuff that I do when I'm doing my coffee in the morning. Uh, I have it programmed that it says, doesn't like audibly say it, but the, the little screen just reads out, hello, darkness, my old friend. And so um, that's how I start my day every day. Um, but you know, so it, it could be that we just wake up and it's like, hello, anxiety, my old friend, I've come to talk with you again, right? Like, it could be this sense of like, I know you're here, you're, you're, you're an old companion, uh, for better or for worse, you're probably not ever fully leaving my life. So what would it look like for us to find a new way to coexist with each other? This is how we can begin when the way is uncertain. In 1989, I was seven years old when I watched Tim Burton's Batman, and I've been hooked with all things Batman or virtually all things Batman ever since. Either Batman, like the Tim Burton 1989 Batman, or the original Ghostbusters movie would be the answer for what film have you seen more than any other film in your life. I'm guessing as a child, I saw both no less than a hundred times, and that's not hyperbole. You know, it's like I, I had it on VHS, and it was just always again and again and again. Like, hey, this one doesn't work anymore, Dad. I need it, you know? I was, I was about to pretend like we need to go out and buy it again, but really it's like I need to find when it's going to be airing again so that I can record it on my VHS recorder. It was a whole other technology thing we used to do back in the day. Um, Batman, uh, growing up, felt seminal to uh, just my imagination and exploring and thinking about like, you know, this, this idea that there is uh, an alter ego, that there can be some other ways that you exist in the world other than what life has just handed you. And it didn't take me all the way until from 1989 to 2022 to start to realize, you know, there might be a few things worth interrogating about Batman narrative. Like, sure, sure, maybe it's not for all of us if we have lots of trauma and grief to decide that we are going to use all of our wealth to get really cool tech and beat up on people. That may not always be the healthiest move for us to make, and it didn't take me that many years to start having that question. But one of the things I appreciate uh, about Batman and about the, the Batman world is increasingly, both in comics and in the films, they're getting us to question, to interrogate, to reflect a little bit more deeply about something that otherwise had just seemed incredibly black or white. And this isn't, I don't think, at least from the DC world and from my own perspective, to be dismissive of Batman, uh, you should know that there's no part of 1989 seven-year-old me that is wanting to discard uh, Batman. 
but it is to acknowledge the complexity of it. It is to say that, yeah, things can be complicated. They can be both and. There can be lots of good in engaging our imaginations and escaping to some other world where we can envision all of these things happening. And there are ways that perhaps when we put ourselves in some of those shoes, we need to just be more attentive and reflective. In our story, we see the complexity with Abram and Sarai too. God has already earlier in Genesis shared with Abram this promise that I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing, your whole family, to the nations. That's, that's the end goal, the trajectory of where this blessing is coming from. And yet, when we see Abram and Sarai and the way they interact with one another, and even Sarai is not without her own complications and how she will treat uh, Hagar and how she will be dismissive and violent towards her. We see that these are a couple who are sort of uh, the, the, the first family of faith, particularly in the Christian imagination, but also uh, in the Hebrew imagination, but they are not without their complications as well. And Abram in our story begins protesting the promises that God has given. There has already been a promise from God that I'm going to make you into this incredible nation, this incredible people that are going to be about enacting God's dream in the world. And Abram is looking at his life and seems to say, got a lot of wealth, I've had a lot of success, doing great, don't see a whole lot of becoming a powerful, incredible, chosen nation that is going to be your people on behalf of justice and good in the world. That's not happening in my life. And so we're invited to see through Abram uh, that even though God has promised now twice uh, to Abram that God is going to be faithful to what God has said, Abram still says, ah, not so sure That's well and good, preacher, on Sunday, that you can say that and remind us of the nice things that people like to be reminded of. But here's what the situation is like on the ground day to day. Here's what we're going through. Here's how parents and children, particularly who have trans children and trans youth, are concerned about where is this God who's the side of justice and love and care for them? Where is God for the people of Ukraine? Where is God for people who are experiencing homelessness? We know we could just go on and on and on about the injustices we experience. And we see in Abram, this pillar of faith, uh, this exemplar who is held up in both testaments of scripture, that he too is asking these questions. He too is protesting and wanting to know where God is. Verse two, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no offspring. And so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. What often would happen if there was a family that didn't have anyone any biological children, there weren't like, you know, Shady Rest Retirement Center or, you know, Center for Active Adults in the Third Third of Life or whatever people call things these days. Um, instead, in those days, then you would just adopt someone and say, hey, here's the deal. I'm going to work out for you really well when I die because you get all of my stuff. But in the meantime, you need to take care of me until I am dead because I don't have any children to do that. 
And so Abram is saying, you said that you were going to start what you're up to, God, in the world through my family, and yet there is no family. It's about to end whenever we end. You seem to have forgotten a very crucial part of what you're up to in the universe. And this is not just after a few weeks or months, but after years and years. And spoiler alert going forward, it will still be many years to come before there seems to be any realization of this promise in their life. Marcus Borg has this quote um, that I find incredibly compelling. He says, you know how remarkable it is that we are and that there is anything and that we are here and that this is all around us, yet conventional wisdom reduces reality to the visible world of our ordinary experience, which is nothing special. This is the secular form of conventional wisdom, the religious form of conventional wisdom with its excessive certitude blinds us to the mystery and wonder of life. There can be a way of seeing that I think particularly fear and anxiety exacerbate within us that can trap us, that can leave us in a world that feels totally desacralized. There's nothing that is sacred. There is nothing that is mysterious. There is nothing that connects us or that is higher than us or that invites us into itself and into participation and solidarity with one another. And it is this conventional wisdom I believe that during Lent, the Jesus way invites us to die to, to question, to acknowledge that there is more going on here. We don't have to have the blinding certitude that Borg cautions again is also. It's not saying pretend like there are going to be easy answers, that there's magic fixes everywhere. But to be able to see our world, even in the tensions that it has, as open with possibilities and mystery, full of awe and wonder. Henry Nouwen reminds us of the five lies of identity that I am what I have, that I am what I do, that I am what other people say or think of me, that I am nothing more than my worst moment, which is often to think, you know, much too lowly of ourselves, and that I am nothing less than my best moment, which is perhaps to have an overinflated sense of who we are and not enter into the complexity of our human existence. That these five lies of identity are caught up in us being oppressed by this conventional way of thinking. And we are invited during the Lenten season to turn from that and to turn towards this way of wonder, this work of awe and wonder in our life. But the word of the Lord came to Abram, and this man shall not be your heir, no one but your very own issue shall be your heir. And then God takes him outside and says, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. 
I, I don't know about you, but whenever I envision things happening in the Bible, unless a building is particularly talked about, I used to think of people outside. So as I was reflecting on this passage this week, I was like, oh, he, he took him outside. I just kind of assumed they were hanging out like on some plane somewhere. Uh, but apparently he was in some building or tent or structure. But I also wonder what it's like for us to get outside of our heads, to get outside of our anxiety, to not detach or numb out to it, but also not to be overwhelmed by it. What is it like for us to take this journey and then to look up at something that is bigger, to open ourselves in whatever experiential way we can, to awe, to wonder, to let that remind us of how beautiful and complex the world that we live in is, to get beyond the crappy narrators that compare, critique, condemn, and catastrophize. In another place, God says to Abram, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. There's this sense initially of the dust. We know of that from Ash Wednesday of our humanity. Uh, and then now in our current passage, invited to count the stars, if you could, which God seems like, good luck, that's not gonna happen. Count the stars to dream of heaven and earth and how they connect us, which reminded me of a quote by Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, it's, you've probably heard it. It's been in a lot of different YouTube videos, right? When he's asked, like, what is the most astonishing thing? And he says, the most astonishing fact is that the molecules that comprise our body are traceable to the crucibles of the centers of stars that manufactured these elements from lighter versions of themselves and then exploded, scattering this enrichment across the galaxy. These atoms and molecules are in us because, in fact, that universe is in us. And we are not only figuratively, but literally stardust. And I'm not trying to do some Jesus juke to sort of say, see, in Genesis knew this before Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm not trying to do any of that. But I do think it is this beautiful thing of wonder, this connection that in the promises that God is making to Abram, consider the dust, consider the stars, and the connection that we can have between them, the bridge between heaven and earth, between our humanity and our hopes for something more of justice to roll down like water in our world, that it can happen, that these two things are not disparate or separate. And so Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, Paul in the New Testament will take this passage and will use this to say that definitively this is about Abram. Abram is believing and so that God is crediting to Abram as righteousness. But in the Hebrew, it's really less clear which direction this is happening in. We're not sure if this is Abram was credited as righteous or if Abram is saying of God, oh, okay, if you're going to do all this, then I think you are still the God who you said you are. You are still a God who's bringing justice and goodness. Maybe indeed the moral arc of the university of the universe still does bend towards justice. It's less clear, but there is something about this awe and wonder exchange that allows faith to be engaged in a fresh way for each of them. One of suggests is we end our homily time, just a couple of practices. April Yamasaki says, take a short walk, even a few minutes to get out of the office or to walk through your own backyard. It can be a refreshing change. 
She invites us to reflect on Luke 24 passage when there are two people walking with Jesus, but they didn't realize that they were with Jesus. And what is it as you go on your walk, you might reflect on that keeps you from recognizing Jesus or the divine in your own life. She goes on to say, go for a nature walk in a nearby park. You could read Psalm 24 before you head out the door. What difference does it make to think of the whole earth and everything in it as God's? Another uh, suggestion from Beth Norcross in Inside Out uh, practices for going deeper in nature is take five minutes just as you are waking to set your intention for the day. You might say, today I will be awake to the world. Use all your senses. Take a moment to breathe. What aspects of nature do you notice that you might not otherwise? What is attracting you? Where is spirit present? Abram believes there is a life God promises to give. And this, of course, is the way, the journey that Abram finds himself on, that Sarai finds herself on, that we find ourselves on too. And I want to invite us this Lenten season to allow awe to break into our world in whatever way or practice. It may be one of the three that I've just outlined, but it may be something else entirely for you so that even though we find ourselves at times in ruts, we don't have to stay stuck, that we can hope and trust that God is present to us and through us and in our world and is acting and inviting us to partner and participate. And so I wanted to share three invitations, also from Marcus Borg, as we close out this homily. Marcus Borg writes, We are invited to go beyond the minds that we have to minds and hearts that are shaped by the spirit of God. We're invited to go beyond the minds that we have, minds dominated and blinded by conventional categories, identities, and preoccupations, to minds and hearts centered in the spirit, alive to wonder, alive to seeing, and alive to compassion. We're invited to go beyond the minds that we have, minds dominated by the ideologies and preoccupations of individualism to minds and hearts that see and hear the suffering caused by systemic injustice, to minds alive to God's passion for justice. And so God, as we continue in this journey of Lent, may you continue to be our way. May we continue to find moments of awe and wonder in the dust of our life as we look up to the stars and find ourselves filled with wonder. May hope and justice, the messiness of our lives and the majesty of our life together with you commingle into birthing something new. Amen.